You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. I never interviewed O.J. only thing I did is I talked with him on the telephone. He said he didn't do it, and I didn't ask him that. He just told me he didn't do it. Renowned trial attorney Jerry Spence. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Imagine practicing law for over six decades, both as a prosecutor and later as a defense attorney, and never, not once, losing a criminal case before a jury. That was the enviable record racked up by Jerry Spence, and his record with civil cases was nearly as perfect. A brilliant legal mind coupled with a charismatic personality and dynamic courtroom presence made Jerry Spence one of the nation's most effective trial lawyers. So it was with more than just passing interest that Jerry Spence sat in the courtroom every day during the 1995 O.J. Simpson trial as a spectator. Two years after the verdict, in 1997, Jerry Spence wrote a book about the case called O.J., The Last Word. And that's when he and I had one of our many conversations over the years. So here now from 1997, attorney Jerry Spence. Despite its title, you do acknowledge that at the end of the book, that this really... And we know better. This really isn't the last word. Pro- it's my last word. <laughs> it's my last word. Maybe not. Probably not. The last word. Probably this the book. Th- th- they'll be writing about this book, Bill, like they wrote about the Kennedy assassination. Forever. For approximately ever. So what made you decide that right now was the time? You, you've, you haven't said anything in print up until now. Well, I've I've avoided it. I said I'm not going to write a book. People would say, are you going to write a book? I'd say not about this case. Enough is enough. Until I began reading what was out there and I understood and began to understand what was happening to this justice system of ours, that case has almost mortally wounded the justice system in America. People have said, you know, we don't want to believe in, we don't believe in juries anymore. We can't trust juries. We don't like these lawyers. We don't like judges. The judges were bad. The juries were bad. They, and they began to, the witnesses, they began to uh, judge the entire justice system by this case. And if we lose this justice system, where are we? What's next? Tell me, where are we going to go? You present a rather bleak picture of where we could be going. It's pretty frightening. Now, a lot of people say to me, well, I'll tell you where we're going, Mr. Spence. If we don't have this justice system, it'll be anarchy. That isn't where we're going to go. Where we're going to go is a system tried by ju- with judges, no juries, judges appointed by the power structure who have no human compassion, we are now going to be a, we will soon become a China where you are charged in the morning, tried by uh, noon, the appeal is over by afternoon, and you are executed by nightfall. Nice and efficient, but our loss of our rights will be manifold. Now, I want to come back in a, few, in a few moments to your prescription there, or the idea that you have, which I think is fascinating. But I want Thank to, you. And you're, you might like to know that you're the first one that's, that's read the book enough to say that is a fascinating uh, idea. Bless you're your the heart. first one. <laughs> I, I, it was, I usually only say this of uh, detective novels, but I found this really hard to put down. Thank it was you just so a, much. You have done... Now, I, I, I must say at the outset, people will wonder, since you tell us at the beginning of the book, that you were, in fact, O.J.'s first choice. 
uh, as uh, part of his defense. Are, were you privy to information for this book that the general public has not been privy to, or were, do you have... No, I've never, I never interviewed O.J. only thing I did is I talked with him on the telephone. He said he didn't do it, and I didn't ask him that. He just told me he didn't do it. I wouldn't do this. Uh, no, and he gave me no information at all. If he had, I couldn't have written the book. Mm. Oh, so so uh, it's important for the reader to know that you're, the point of view that you're coming at this from is the point of view of someone who was sitting in the courtroom observing firsthand from the point of view of an experienced defense attorney. I've been in the courtroom 45 years, and I think I've probably tried more murder cases than perhaps all of the people involved in that trial put together. And... Um, and my my viewpoint uh, comes from somebody who doesn't have any investment in the case. I um, I don't have any excuses to make. I don't have to blame anybody for the loss. I don't become a great American icon by virtue of having lost one of the great trials in this century. I find it fascinating that the even-handed way that you do address what all the other principals have been saying in their respective books and how you simply present without calling anybody a hero or an idiot, this person says this, this person says this, oh, and this person says this and that and the other thing. And you have found, as I have found from my experience over the years, when you collect enough viewpoints, somewhere in here is the truth as to what really happened. Well... Certainly, we couldn't get the truth about the case from any of the participants. Uh, what we could get was their excuses, and when we analyze their excuses, we find out what really went wrong in the case. Or, you, is it possible, as Vince Bugliosi tried to do, to boil it down to a simple statement like the prosecution blew it, or Judge Ito was was incompetent, or the jurors were stupid? Or well, I think that the best summary of it might be this: that the that the defense attorneys weren't brilliant. They were like, uh, let's call them like the carriage trade doctors. They charged a lot of money, but that didn't make them any better. The the prosecution, if it had 20, a checklist of 20, 20 things not to do, 20 mistakes not to make, would have gone right down that checklist and made every one of them. And so what happened was that the defense didn't make very many errors. And that's how it can be lauded. The prosecution made them all. It's sort of like walking the bases loaded every inning and never getting a hit yourself, but you walk so many players home that you've lost the game that way. That's exactly right. <laughs> but that's not to say, is it? That Marsha Clark and Christopher Darden and the rest of the the, the uh, prosecution, uh, they're not, that's not to say that they are incompetent or no. unable to try a case. No, no, I don't say they're incompetent. I just say that they, uh, I think Marsha Clark was is not only a competent lawyer, but more than a competent lawyer. And I think Marsha Clark um, is a, probably a good, decent person. But she simply didn't know how to try this case, and she wasn't the right person to try this case. She shouldn't have even been on. You know what it was like? She just stumbled onto this case. She was there because she had been called by uh, by Van Adder uh, mm -hmm. to uh, help them with the search warrants. It's like a great play that's going to go on the stage. And along comes a stagehand and just stumbles onto the stage and ends up as the star. That's what happened. 
And otherwise, he's a fine stagehand. Otherwise, he's a fine stagehand, <laughs> and he might have been able to star in some other movie, but not this one, not, <laughs> not this one. I, I must say, yours is the first of the many books about the case that I've read that has even the first kind thing to say about Judge Lance Ito. Well, you know, there's a conventional wisdom in this country that we all fall into. For example, the conventional wisdom in this country is that uh, um, Amelda Marcos, for example, is a bad woman. She's not a bad woman, that's, but that's the conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom is that Judge Ito is a bad judge. I don't think that's true. I don't think he was a bad judge. Let's put it, turn it around. Supposing that the jury in this case had done what the majority of Americans wanted to have done, and that is they wanted to see O.J. Simpson convicted and hung. Well, Judge Ida would have been the finest American jurisprudence uh, uh, judge in the in the history of the country. He would have been lauded by everybody. He would he, he his ticket to the United States Supreme Court would have been made, and uh, everybody would have said, "See there, this wonderful Japanese American. This is a place of the of the. This is a land of the free and the home of the brave. And even the great Judge Ito is up there on the Supreme Court, a Japanese American, and on and on. We would have heard it gone on. He would have gone down in history in that fashion. So. When we are disappointed, we begin to blame everybody except the people who are to blame. We want to blame the jury. We want to say the jury, this was a bad jury. We want to say Judge Ito was a bad judge. We want to say the witnesses were screwy. We want to, we want to do all the bad things. The, but the truth of the matter is that we ought to blame the prosecution who simply made all of the mistakes that they could possibly make in the presentation of this case. After this short break, how Jerry Spence almost got thrown in jail for something he did during the O.J. trial. Now back to my 1997 conversation with Jerry Spence. Was it frustrating for you? I mean, I can understand where it would be frustrating for Vince Bugliosi, a prosecutor's prosecutor, to be watching this case and saying, Do this! Do this! Why are you making this, this, these 20 mistakes? How frustrating is it for one of the world's greatest defense attorneys, to sit in the courtroom and watch the proceedings. That Were the times when you just wanted to get up there and strangle somebody? I did. There was a time when I did. Oh, yeah. There was a time <laughs> I'm sitting in the courtroom and Chris Darden is being asked, begged by the judge, to apologize. Yes. He's violated an order. The judge is saying, I'm going to hold you in contempt unless... and. Darden is not going to say, I'm sorry. He is not going to apologize in any fashion. He is going to argue and going to, you can see his neck's bowed. He is going to, he is not going to give in under any circumstances. And the judge is almost pleading with him because he doesn't want to throw him in jail. And finally, in the middle of this thing, I'm sitting in the courtroom and I jump up and I say, Christ sakes, Chris. The judge looks over at me, and he says, that's enough out of you, Mr. Spence. <laughs> I almost went to jail for him. It's got to be. It's, I, I, I keep picturing Michael Jordan sitting on the bench, perfectly healthy. He's not sitting there because he's injured. He just wasn't chosen for this game, and watching very good NBA players, but they're making stupid rookie mistakes. That's exactly That's exactly what you see. On the other hand, the mistakes that she made weren't really obvious, like the story that she told, or she really never did tell. She, she, she selected the wrong, wrong drama to be presented to the jury. The right, the right drama was the truth. This wasn't a, 
uh, a, an abuse case, although he'd have been abusive to his wife. There isn't any question about that. But this was a murder case, a plain, old, down and dirty, ugly murder case that should have been presented like that. Instead of saying to, uh, opening up the argument for these black women on the jury who said, you see there, <clears throat> she's not being fair. Um, all people who beat their wives aren't murderers, and that's the kind of tactics that this woman will use. Then, you see, you've got Marsha Clark doing her whatever it is that she's doing with Chris Darden under the table or whatever she's doing it, and she thinks that this black jury of black women aren't smart enough to see this. I mean, we have another white woman trying to do in a black man we got a and then we've got this white woman going over here and shaking her shoulders in front of Johnny Cochran um you know the, the conduct of Marsha Clark in the courtroom was enough to cause her to lose the the act the the um, the case to begin with you make the point in in many places in your book that the most single most powerful weapon any lawyer has is the truth. Exactly. Even when the truth hurts, when it's That's painful. Right. So why didn't Marsha? It, it's, uh, it's easy to second guess, but why couldn't Marsha Clark present to the jury that maybe Ron Goldman and Nicole Simpson had something going? Why couldn't she present that Mark Furman had used the N word before, but he's a good man? Exactly. Those. Uh, she, or she didn't even have to say he was a good man. All a she had cop. to do was to tell the. Yes, exactly. All she had to do was to say the truth, and but she wanted to present. Miss, uh, she wanted to present Nicole Simpson as this kind of almost a virgin Madonna, as as this sinless, pure white sister almost, um, the pretty Mother Teresa. And uh, you've got jurors over there that say, "Come on, give me a break. I know better than that, and you know better than that too." And 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 so uh, she loses her credibility. She's lost her. She she had great witnesses who could have the savage savage woman who could have mm -hmm. uh, who could have put O.J. Simpson at the intersection where he was proceeding home after the murder. Murder, and she and the savage woman had his license number even had the correct mm -hmm. license number gave it to the police before she ever sold her story. And she sold her story for $5,000, and now Marsha Clark, who got $4.2 million for her story, says that this woman who got $5,000 for her story isn't a credible witness. She put her case on the barking of that dog. That's not how you try a case. Let me, before we run out of time, I do want to get to your proposal. We, we are so, as you say in the book, we are so proud of ourselves for appointing judges for life that we don't subject them to the pressures of the ballot box and the, poli the politics that go with that. But you don't like the idea of electing the judges either. Where, where are we if we don't appoint them for life nor elect our judges? Well, thank you for asking because you're the first to ask. <laughs> and that's maybe that's the why way. I get the big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> And it may be, it may be the, it may be the most, is important part of the book is an important part of the things that I have to say in my life. We should, we can't, we can't appoint these uh, judges for life because they become tyrants. 
and they take the bench with the political attitudes of the people who appointed them. We can't elect these judges because they become beholden to the people who elect them and who pay the money to elect them. They don't have to raise funds and campaign. Exactly. Uh, so what we do now is that we take the names of all credible, competent trial lawyers who have tried cases and put their names in the hat, in the, in the computer hat, and they're drafted, just like we draft jurors. And he's drafted, this judge or she's drafted, this, this lawyer is drafted, to sit on a case, three cases, five, however many, for a, for a term. And then that, just like a juror, then that person goes right back where he came from. And we can draft as many as we need to get current. We'll draft a, a panel of four or five of the more experienced lawyers to sit on the appeals court and listen to the appeals. There isn't any politics. There isn't any appointment for life. The judges get the, the, these these lawyers become better lawyers because they've been judges, and and those those who were judges will now know what it's like to be a lawyer. I have to tell you, I love this idea, but it it, it maybe I'm too cynical, maybe I'm too pessimistic, but it occurred to me: supposing we have Attorney Jerry Spence, he's got five, ten. How are 100 cases going at once? However many you're working on, your desk is piled high, your inbox, and the phone rings. It says, uh, this is the judge commission, the, uh, the jury commission. You've been drafted for the next six weeks. Who's got time among America's well, premier legal minds but, to set but, aside the desk for but, six weeks? To... Yeah, yeah, but you know, don't you understand that we think we're so damned great and so <laughs> smart and so important? I have to tell you that the juror feels that way, too. How about the little guy who's, who, who's really hurt? who gets $5 a day for his jury service, and he's going to go broke or bankrupt if he sits on that jury. And I'm telling you that if if jurors, ordinary citizens can do it, then lawyers who make their big bucks trying cases can do it too. And how do you prevent the case of you, Jerry Spence, you being, you've been chosen to hear a case, F. Lee Bailey is the one who comes before you, and he's he says, come on. Cut me a little bit, bit of break here. Next time I'm a judge and you come before me, we can a little work a little deal, too. Well, I never have thought that one through because I presume that lawyers will be honest. But at least if we get a dishonest one, we're not stuck with him for life. I just want to say this about the book. I've, uh, I've used the O.J. Simpson case as a, and an in-depth look into this case for people who are in, are interested in it, who want to know where the knife went and mm -hmm. how he hid the knife, how he hid the, the bloody clothes that has never been really revealed. It's revealed in the book. How he learned to murder, which has never been mm -hmm. revealed, which is revealed in the book. But the real reason that I wrote the book is to give us an opportunity to review our justice system and to learn to love it. This system saves us from tyranny, and we have to have it. If we lose it, we're going to have the brown shirts knocking at the door. Jerry Spence is 94 now and still lives in his native Wyoming. And you can get his book, O.J., The Last Word, by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. Oh, and while you're at heardeverything.com, don't miss my interviews with two other top trial lawyers, my 2002 conversation with O.J.'s attorney, Johnny Cochran. When I was 11 years old, I wanted to be a lawyer. And as I think back, I can only tell you that I love to convince, to persuade, to argue. Because I didn't really know much about any lawyers until high school. And my 1994 conversation with William Kunstler. Pickets around my house, bullets flying through the 
downstairs window, bullets in the mail, hate messages on my answering machine. If you're going to do these kind of cases, you've got to anticipate and expect that and hope to live through it. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. If you haven't already done so, would you please subscribe to Now I've Heard Everything? Thank you for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the man who proves that you don't have to have vision to be a visionary, my 1998 conversation with the author of Planet of the Blind, poet and professor Stephen Cusisto. I live in this sea of color. It's like lying in an ice cave on your back and staring up through the layers of ice at the sun or living inside a Jackson Pollock drip painting. I live in this tidal wash of color that makes no sense. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.